0: Hello, this is UK Motor Talk. Now, regular listeners of the podcast will know that a few weeks ago, Graham went and got himself stuck in public transport over in Spain. But it wasn't the only thing that he did. We were very jealous that he managed to check out an exhibition at Guggenheim in Bilbao. And, well, we didn't. You'll appreciate this being polite and whispering. He is our car whisperer, Graham. But he visited an exhibition called Motion Auto Art Architecture, and this is what he found...
1: The automobile has existed for around 140 years since the invention of the internal combustion engine, or some of these days would say the infernal combustion engine. I've been around for the second half of that period, and for almost the entirety of that second 70 years, I've been fascinated by cars, by the speed, by the style, by the noise. All of those things attracted me as a very, very small kid, and that's a, a fascination, a lifelong fascination that's just stayed with me and over those uh, intervening many many years i've collected books films magazines and i've been lucky enough to visit a number of motor museums in europe in the uk and all have their sort of different themes for example this one is really about the connection of car design and architecture and artists where Artists have affected car design, where car designers have affected artists, and um, they all have different uh, reasons for existence. Black Hawk, I remember in California, is very much about star cars because it's so near Hollywood. Other museums like Bewley is very much about the, the, the history of the motor car. Uh, the Dutch Motor Museum, very much about technical developments. And um, the Schumpf Museum in France, which is very much about Bugattis. But here we are just about to see some of the cars that I've only glimpsed actually in the flesh in this most extraordinary building because this is uh, by any standards an extraordinary building. The Guggenheim in Bilbao designed by Frank Geary much of it clad in titanium which is something normally reserved for space rockets and so on and rarely and only expensively used in buildings and it's as wondrous inside as it is out. I can highly recommend it. It's a series of domes and odd-shaped buildings. Frank Gehry never does anything in a conventional manner, which is a little surprise then that Sir Norman Foster, our very own British architect, who's uh, pulled this collection together and pulled it together from his personal contacts largely. For example, he's been one of the judges at Goodwood of the Concours and obviously got to know Nick Mason there, and one of the cars that we have seen before is Nick Mason's Ferrari 250 GTO, still one of the most beautiful cars in the world, but there are many, many cars in here that just don't travel, that stay in museums or private collections. So I'm really looking forward to seeing some of these and uh, talking you through everything there is to see.
2: The exhibition is a celebration of the artistic dimension of the automobile.
0: Norman Foster. The Curator of Motion, Autos, Art, Architecture.
2: So we brought together nearly 40 of the most outstanding automobiles, the most beautiful, the most rare, the most innovative automobiles, which have a vision of the future. So they're center stage in the gallery. But it's a wider scan. It's about the relationship between different aspects of design, art, Sculpture, painting, architecture, graphics, fashion, a holistic view of, of art and design in the widest sense.
1: So the full title, Motion, Autos, Art and Architecture, states very well exactly what the exhibition's all about. And it attempts to, I think, celebrate the motor car through its 140 years or so but also acknowledge the fact that it's on its way out. It isn't going to be what it once was and as the car that we recognize, it will soon cease to exist.
2: Breaking down the traditional barriers and saying that really design is all-encompassing, it's around us and bringing attention perhaps to uh, some things that we think of as being of today autonomous driving electric propulsion and making the viewer aware that those as ideas go back in time that at the turn of the century the 19, 20th century that electric propulsion was a major element and very advanced
1: Interestingly Volkswagen, Cadillac are two of the uh, sponsors and patrons, Sennheiser and the Automotive Intelligence Center, so there's a lot of people involved with this. So straight into the main hall and the very granddaddy of them all, the uh, Benz, which was uh, I think 1894 or 1896, hang on, let's have a look. 1886, I've actually seen this car before Because it did one year appear at Goodwood, not in use, but it is a recreation. The uh, original does exist, but it's so precious that it's never moved out of the museum. And this was state of the art, 1886. Very very simple petrol engine at the rear, two large wheels, entirely chain driven, and one single wheel still the front steered with a tiller. Adequate for two people. I wouldn't feel very safe I don't think travelling in it but then that was a common enough view at the time that that it was indeed perhaps dangerous to go as fast as 5 miles an hour and would your face fall off people really thought these things this one was driven, uh, the original in 1888 was driven um, 106 kilometres from Mannheim to Forzheim and back the first ever long distance journey by automobile that really sort of began it all and then we take a leap into the 1930s with the Chrysler Airflow. I mean, it's a large American car, but it's aerodynamically far ahead of anything of its time with a curving front grille, lamps built in. Everything about it is curvaceous, quite literally, and that's um, what was wanted at the time. though. That was a real forerunner. But interestingly, uh, alongside it, the uh, Tatra, and the Tatra was also a very adventurous car. This is the T87 from 1948. Tatra, well, it's okay. We probably regard it these days as uh, as rather old-fashioned. In its day, it certainly was not that. Built in Czechoslovakia, originally from the 1930s. But it's extraordinarily aerodynamic again. Rear-engined with huge rear scoops. And a fabulous rear tail. Which, um, completely unseen of its time. And quite a large engine in the rear. Huge vent. I mean, this is sort of thing we're seeing, in, I guess, in supercars today. These these two cars, or these three cars, have led to uh, influential designs by so many of the common copper car designers they do all learn from each other and they do all learn from the art and architecture of the time an old favorite of mine the bugatti racing car one of the most successful racing cars of its time this is the t35 in 1924 absolutely a torre bugatti was a uh, a leading car designer of his day the cars were lighter stronger faster and uh, just superior in every possible way which is why they won so many races and they're, they're absolutely jewel-like in the precision with which they're put together but they're particularly noticeable in the, the front end construction but if you look inside in the cockpit uh that's that's the same you know it's just everything is immaculate everything is polished because that was the way Ettore Bugatti was and Bugatti still has that reputation for being uh absolutely precision engineering now to something completely different a sort of French Grand Routier of the period 1920s This is the Voisin C7. Uh, I've not seen this before, I've seen some other voisins because they have this really quite extraordinary motif on the front. Massive saloon of its day, absolutely luxurious, driven probably by a chauffeur rather than the uh, proud owner who would be uh, counting their money in the back. But again, it's extraordinarily adventurous in its design. Ah, and we have a car here that I do recognize. This is uh, proudly from Bewley. Given the fact that it's got GB plates on it, it looks like it may well have been driven here. This is the Rolls Royce 4050, the Alpine Eagle of uh, 1914. Just the point at which um, Rolls Royce was beginning to make itself known around the world as, as an incredible long distance tourer. It could go anywhere and did go anywhere and everywhere. They eventually appeared on every continent, and uh, they didn't break. As simple as that. I mean, the, the Tori Bugatti, I think it was, who said they were basically just trucks. Well, they were built on a truck chassis, and they were massively built. If one compares them to uh, other cars of the period, um, the later ones certainly look rather heavy. But you know, you've got uh, massive headlights on the front, a huge radiator everything is perfected to be as durable as possible I'm going to come back to the paintings and the pictures later let's uh, just concentrate on the cars for the moment now this is uh, an old friend of many millions this is the car that put uh, America on the road as they say Uh, the Model T Ford this is a 1914 so the first of these were 1908 around about 1912 1914 they were really really selling in massive numbers and uh, Henry Ford an extraordinary marketer you know he was actually putting the price down the more he sold I have driven one I found uh, an early one uh, very very difficult to drive because the pedals don't work in the way that you expect the pedals are reversed and you change gear with a pedal as well including if you're uh, particularly unwary changing into reverse but as we said this put america on the road because it was so affordable they made 15 million of them now this is uh, certainly a car that i've never seen before and i knew nothing of and still know nothing of so i'm going to have to read from this this is a 1900 and it's an electric vehicle yes They were fashionable then too. One time the uh, land speed record was held by the Frenchman Camille Gennazzi in uh, his car, which was battery powered, and it was like uh, an electric rocket almost. They made 305 of these, devised by Porsche. This was uh, a sort of hybrid, primitive in its way. Nevertheless, a viable four-seater were on now somewhat different wheels and tires and it's much more road going recognisably with a steering wheel accelerator pedal and a and front canopy that looks like it came out of a Batman film quite extraordinary uh, or maybe influenced the Batman film I did talk about them influencing each other Ferdinand Porsche was just 24 when he designed this the two front wheels have electric motors built in and uh, that's the sort of thing that's being done today and um, the moon buggies uh, are mostly powered in that very way okay so we've come into the next gallery now this is a car I don't think we've seen this one before but I have seen one of these before this is the Bugatti type 57 Atlantic Ettore Bugatti. We've already talked about how jewel-like these vehicles are. Every panel on it is pop riveted together, as you'll see, and it's, it's air flowed together. It's it's extraordinarily detailed, with the aerodynamic ridge running through it. It's a it's a very uh, odd way uh, of building the car, but it's one of the most aerodynamic cars of its age. I notice it's got trafficators, the old-fashioned pop-up trafficators that must have been like putting the brakes on but i mean this was a seriously expensive seriously quick car in its day and only four of these were built and i have seen one before but uh, that's quite amazing this is uh, the second hall we're now in and uh, we'll go over to you know i've talked before about my love of french grand routiers this is the Delahaye Type 165. This is a 1939 car. One wonders, had war not intervened, what would have become a Delahaye because they pretty much collapsed after the Second World War. But this was such an elegant car. Beautifully curvaceous, picked out at its very, very best here under these lights. It's so polished, it's so aerodynamic. Wheel spats on all four wheels, and an absolute delight. I mean, it. It's it's going at 150 miles an hour even while it's parked with the handbrake on. It's just so fast. Beautiful headlights, all chromed in, and that uh, the Delahaye badge. And so I've seen a few of these before, but not this particular car. And we turn around behind to the Bentley R-Type Continental. This is a 1953 Bentley, of course, is still using that naming say 52, they made 200 of these. The early 60s ones, I think, look slightly better. But nevertheless, it's a jewel of its day. Quite amazing. And then we come round to something I've never seen. This is a very Spanish, very much of its time. It's absolutely bright yellow. This is a Pegaso, a Spanish make. They were very successful in making sports cars. Briefly, Uh, And uh, I think um, this was a more design exercise. This is the Z102 Cupola. A little bit like the Ferrari bread van. It's got a massive sort of plexiglass dome at the rear. 1952, as I thought, it's a project car. There was only one made, beautifully spatted at the rear. And um, quite extraordinary how the front wings reveal the wheel while hiding it sort of partially hiding it aerodynamically. Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I suspect this is actually road legal because I think it's got indicators on which are not in period. Maybe that's maybe that's my imagination. And you wouldn't want to climb out of this without taking some care because the silencer is just outside the driver's door. So one would have to be very careful where one placed the legs. And a large... Henry Moore sculpture is all about the human form I mean we're all pretty aerodynamic well some of us have put a little bit of weight on over the years but um, we're all fairly slippery not just when wet so back into the first hall, looking at some photos now the design for the um, zeppelin including a wooden form of and a model of bear in mind these were fearsome modernist war machines in their day a collection of posters from the 1920s and 30s the San Sebastian, well San Sebastian just down the road from here in fact with a circuit in the 1920s and 30s, uh, early 30s certainly, you know all of these cars as displayed here were just doing 200 miles an hour and bear in mind in 1935 you could do 200 miles an hour in a racing car. They were capable of doing that. Grand Prix cars have been capable of doing 200 miles an hour for a very, very long time. We have some wonderful photos of the Bugatti in action on that circuit. The Targa Florio from the 1920s with, well, it looks like the Fiat, the, the giant Fiat that we've so often seen at Goodwood. Actually racing. That's extraordinary. And going through a wheel change in the pits. And some of these I've seen before. Some of the great paintings of the Le Mans races in the early, thir- well, early mid 30s. The race series started in 1929. But they all they all move. Even the ones where the cars are static. Frederick Gordon Crosby, uh, the great English artist. So they've got several of his works here. Unsurprisingly, he's one of the great and most collectible of uh, motoring and motorsport artists. Some wonderful black and whites. Le Corbusier. Well, I suppose a lot of people forget. Yes, most known as an architect. But nevertheless... Uh, was also a very good painter as I'm sure you can hear there are actually a lot of people here this is a very very popular exhibition and it's in a huge museum this is a layout drawing for uh, the Ford Motor Company's uh, Highland Park Michigan facility and how well it's all laid out with the railway lines laid in to it so that the Finished vehicles can be taken straight out. Rather different to some of the more bespoke English ways of making cars. And this is something I'd never noticed before, or never seen before. This is the Benz that we were talking about earlier. This is an Andy Warhol rendition of it. Multiple prints of the same painting, but in different colours. So as it says, just reading straight from the wall... This gallery traces the birth of the automobile from the customised, horseless carriage through to its mass production. Indeed it does. So this is just for James. This is a collection of uh, model cars of all periods. They're not labelled, so I'm gonna have to guess at some of these, but the Silver Bullet, very much a 20s land speed record car. Underneath that, a um, splitty VW camper. Below that, I think a 36 Audi or the Auto Union as it was of its day. This is in the single wheel, uh, so this is the, the, the race version. There's a McLaren from the 70s, Mercedes, Mercedes. Extraordinary collection, some of which are not cars that were ever produced, they're just very, very slippery models. Slippery could not be said of the mid 50s Cadillac. Well, looks like it's cast in concrete and probably weighed about as much. A very nice uh, Bugatti. A very nice Ferrari Dino. Porsches, VWs. These are all spectacular cars of their day. Very late, probably 70s Ferrari. I think that's a 330p. Uh, The Bugatti 57 Atlantic. There, these are, are, oh, gorgeous. A lot of these are tin plate, which of course was very popular in its day. And there's a police Porsche Carrera. Now, many, many years ago, I actually saw one of these on the motorway in Holland, I think it was. And they'd always have two guys in them. They'd always have the lights going. But because they were topless, the police inside wore police helmets and full race suits, police race suits, as from what I could see anyway, as they overtook me at great rate of knots, a long time ago. Well, our third gallery, totally different, <laughs> To start with a minimum car, minimalist car, entirely in plywood from 1936, ah, this is a Le Corbusier, I referred to him earlier, most uh, known as a futurist architect but in this case an extraordinarily complex piece of woodwork. A project, no doubt, that he had hoped would turn itself into a car. Well, I guess it did because it's sort of, it's certainly the forerunner of the 2CV. It looks very much like the 2CV and uh, Le Cabousier claimed that uh, the 2CV idea was pinched from him. The original Fiat 500, still a pretty little car. This is a 57, the Nuova Cinquecenti Dante Giacosa. They made nearly four million of these, which is quite extraordinary. And at the rather larger and rather less well-known 600 followed that. This is BMW's take on it. This is the BMW 600 from 1957. Designed by Willie Black. This is a front-entry car it must have been an interesting scramble to get into the back seats but uh, like the sort of Isetta of the period entirely entered from the front I've not seen one of these before it's an interesting piece of design packaging to get everything in there and everything is actually sort of connected to the front door which is really quite bizarre and then we come on to an old frame because uh, this is uh, this has been seen in many places This is a half mini, so uh, it's a 66 mini, which has been more or less cut in half, which is a very good way of illustrating uh, how it's put together. I never realized uh, until this moment just how thin the mini roof was. having rolled one many years ago, I suppose I should have known, but there you go. Interesting to see it cut. You get a better understanding, I think, of the packaging with it cut away like this and with the way in which Alec Issigonius repackaged that entire front end of engine, transmission and everything else. I mean it's a a remarkable piece of packaging. Followed by the Molten bike much later of course, 1998. can't say that I'm much into bikes but a very interesting space frame structure for it, uh, interesting way in which it's been done. Now this is uh, an old friend This is a Renault 4. I may have mentioned this before. But if you took one of these and made it two feet narrower and two feet longer and caged it and used a fiberglass body with a supercharged 350 cubic inch American V8, Chevy V8, this is what I was drag racing in the late 80s. I suppose mid to late 80s. With a couple of colleagues. I think the car, when one of our three owners passed on, sadly, the car was then sold and I I think finished up in Holland. But, uh, you know, we were running 12s and 13s in its day. Very utilitarian vehicle. I'd love to have one now, actually. Incredibly practical. On to a splitty. Quite an early one. The experts would know the number of windows because the number of windows is critical. This is the Samba from 62 I had two of the uh, slightly later ones enjoyed them very much although they were continually breaking down and 2CV this is the Sahara with well, it's a sort of ruggedized version I don't think I'd be very comfortable with having um, fuel in the doors but this did they made nearly 700 of these I'm quite amazed with a bonnet with an inset spare, additional cooling an exposed fan at the rear, you know, there are all kinds of things done to justify this being called a Sahara and then we come on to, well really one of the granddaddies of them all Volkswagen Classic, this is the ubiquitous Beetle it's a 51 actually same age as me, looks in better shape another Ferdinand Porsche, of course they made 22 million of these those sorts of numbers illustrate just how popular motoring became. And now we come into, rather differently, the motorsport area. Now there's some old friends here. We come straight into uh, a Gullwing, a Mercedes Gullwing. Still a most gorgeous car, multi million pounds these days. 55. 300SL, this was um, the car to own extraordinarily luxurious one of these sold recently which was um, the designer Rudolf Uhlenhaut's own car which I remember Sterling telling me had its own design of ski rack so the designer could take it on family holidays and did do so with, with skis on the roof and this most extraordinary car It's it's, this wonderful chassis here, which is very reminiscent of something I remember seeing in Stirling's front hall, which was a sort of quarter-size Maserati birdcage chassis, built to illustrate the lightweight, very complex welding, the, the small tubes rather than the big, heavy chassis that had been before, the suspension mountings, and just everything hung from this incredibly lightweight chassis. And then we come to an old friend from Goodwood, 250 GTO. I've seen this driven so many times by Nick, by Nettie, and um, it's a Bizzarini. This is Nick's 10 tenths company has lent this one. Beautifully presented. I've always been amazed at how tractable it actually is for what is a very limited number. I think it's 36 or 37 built. It's a race car. But I remember seeing him years ago driving this through Hammersmith. To very slow traffic and it seemed to be quite happy. I can only commend his uh, book 10 tenths to uh, both, uh, it includes a DVD and CD and so on. You can hear it at full chat and also hear the story of just how much money he had to spend to get it to run because um, it was not in good shape when he bought it. I've only been in one, and that was at Goodwood, up the hill. You see all the stars collect there. By Formula One driver, Riccardo Patrese. Who did explain to me he'd never been allowed to drive one before. Even though he was a factory F1 driver. So now we come to the uh, famous James Bond cars. I think this is a 5. This is one of the early ones. With a very nice clip from the movie. Showing him driving. He, of course, didn't do the driving, but beautiful car, absolutely beautiful car, so we wander on to uh, another old favourite, beautiful Frank Sayre design, the Jaguar E-Type, now I think this is an early one, this is I think a 3.8, the 4.2, oh it's a left hand driver as well, the 4.2 had a little more grunt, Uh, I've driven both, most delightful car to drive, beautifully accurate steering, fabulous brakes, and all this stuff developed at Le Mans, so this is a 63, you know, I wouldn't have believed they made 70,000 of these, and this is from Norman Foster's collection, actually a surprising number of these cars are, I did start this by saying, he's a bit of a car nut, and uh, he certainly is, the Porsche 356 right beside it, this is an early 1951, again this is Norman Foster's as it says under the uh, heading Sporting, the five examples selected are each in their own way a delight to behold quite apart from their racing pedigrees. Well of course they did have racing pedigrees, the 300SL of course came out of the 300 race cars the Porsches were race cars the Malcolm Sayer design came from the C and particularly the D type the 250 GTO was pure race car and a rather nice collection of quite large scale BMW race cars. The, oh, these are the models of the BMW Art cars. I quite like the, it's a very recent Le Mans car with on its rear wing, you know, everybody puts just their um, logo or whatever their advertising chat. This says, lack of charisma can be fatal. Can't argue with that, could you? We'll pass by all the BMW Art cars and then we go into. Probably the area that I've been most interested in, which is the futurist cars. Now, this is a car I've never seen in the flesh. This is Buckminster Fuller, for those of you who are familiar with geodesic domes. Bucky Fuller was the inventor of the geodesic dome. He also invented, well, he invented lots of things, but he invented the Dymaxion car, which was, I'd say, I've never seen one in the flesh. Now I didn't know this is another Norman Foster car, I'm beginning to wonder how many of these he actually owns. This is car number four, well there were only four made, and I'm sure that I can describe it. I think it has to uh, be matched to the photos and videos to make any sort of sense at all. It is so rare. Engine right at the back, ventilated fin. Don't you just love it when you hear race cars go past? Yes, they've got plenty of them in here, and plenty of sound effects. This is the, this is called the Palm Beach, it's a Citroen, Uh, I think it's a DS21. This is the, I'm probably going to say this wrong, the Decapitable, which is, had its roof cut off so it's a convertible. Wonderful looking futurist car in its way. then we come on to uh, some of the real futurist cars This is the Alfa Romeo Bat 7 this is from 1954 this is slippery in the extreme, called Bat it was one of a series and it was, well take wind tunnel aerodynamics to their crazy extreme, this is it this is an extraordinarily working motor car built by Tony I believe actually put together but it's an Alfa Romeo but it's got a little Batoni badge on it, so I'm guessing they actually assembled it. And now, the Stratos Zero. Well, uh, we talked about things being taken to their extreme. This certainly is. Another Batoni, a, a purely a styling exercise. Only one made. The rear engine cover, can't call it a bonnet, it isn't. engine cover lifted up so that one can see it's sort of mid rear engine but the cockpit is quite extraordinary and the only way in or out is by lifting the entire front which you couldn't get enough leverage to do it physically so i'm guessing it's got some sort of power assistance again it's it's one of these cars that i've seen a photo of but never in the flesh and similarly we come onto some uh, amazing General Motors cars, the Firebird series, this is, uh, well, if you let your top designers go lakes racing, go and get involved with Bonneville, Speed Weeks and so on and so on, you end up with a car that looks like this, because it's not a car, it's one person in an incredibly slippery vehicle, it's going to go very fast, and it's the jet age. It's a Harley Earl, one of his great designs. 54, 1954, just the one. It's a show car, but it's illustrative of how far you can take these things. And at the other extreme, Lewis's 2020 Mercedes AMG F1, the W11, believed to be one of the fastest race cars ever built. You either love that noise or it's the devil's work. I love it, personally. Just goes to show you how absolutely tiny the driver's area is of this and how complex the fences are. Away from current race team cars and some very, very nice blown-up photos of the differing F1 teams of the period of their pit crews at work it's a tribute to those pit crews and the extraordinary work they do we're on to the Firebird 2 this was the show car I think this was the Detroit show car from 56 only two made one of them apparently with a titanium body another Harley Earl design they really did let him loose with some extraordinary designs and you know, that's where all the sort of the wings came from. We go on to the Firebird 3, which is adjacent. Another interesting Thomas Heatherwick design study for a four-seater car. Here of the, uh, the latest uh, London Routemaster bus, or it isn't the Routemaster, the la- latest London bus. So this is the Firebird 3. Harley Earl uh, uh, at his wildest again, 1958. And again, a one-off. These are all out of... General Motors Museum this could be driven remotely quite extraordinary that is too in its day 58 but then uh, Mercedes I seem to remember in the late 50s very early 60s were experimenting with these things oh listen interesting Americana in the next hall Cadillac Eldorado Beeritz from 59 we talked about the Harley Earl and the wings and fins this has well, it's the classic wings and fins, American auto. I mean, they just got bigger and bigger and bigger through '58, '59, '60, '61. It all went a bit mad. But at the other extreme it is absolutely delightful. Lake's racer, the Ford Pearson brothers coupe from '34. Well, I don't think it is from '34. It it was based upon. A 34 Model B, I would think, but they built it in 1950. It's incredibly low, incredibly cut down, and it's basically like a Lakes racer. No fenders to get in the way. Beautifully presented. Very quick car in its day. One of the classic American cars, the Mustang. They tell me that the perfect Mustang is the 64 and a half. Well, this is a 65. They made ten and a quarter million of these. This is from Haynes Motor Museum. Good boys. That's a nice museum they've got down there. And it's nice that they're uh, lending their particular pony car, which is in metallic blue with white leather interior. Lovely. Auto box. Don't know which engine this is. Hopefully it's one of the larger ones. Let's have a look, see. It's a 289, so it's the 4.7 litre 289. Some of these were made with six... Why you would buy a car like this with a you know, 150 brake horsepower six-cylinder, God only knows. But, nevertheless, some people did, but uh, you could buy the 289 and the high-power versions. And then at the other end of the Americana is the ubiquitous Willys Jeep, which is a very late one, so this is 45. Much of these were made by Ford, in fact, rather than Willys, because they couldn't keep up with demand from the American forces. This one is a very, very nice one. There were nearly 400,000 of these made. I am not sure how many still survive now, but um, it's the classic army Jeep. It's got axe and shovel on the side. It's got fuel tanks on the back spare wheels and they were just so tough they could go through, over and under just about anything quite complex transfer box so you had four-wheel drive available at any time you wanted it. Do you know, I thought this would be a fairly quiet affair and I'm amazed there are just thousands of people here. It's clearly proved to be a really, really popular event that I can't find my way out of. Oh, bed on. Heading for the last bit. I think we'd need about uh, three days of filming to capture uh, most of this. But I have to say the vehicles are beautifully presented. And f- absolutely first class. This is their Sound of Motion gallery. So with that uh, soundtrack to end on, I suggested, right at the beginning of this, that this was something special for me because this was an opportunity to see lots of cars I'd never seen in the flesh I'd never seen in, in reality they were things that I'd not even seen in museums because I haven't been to the Fiat Museum in Turino, but obviously should go and I haven't been to the General Motors Museum either and obviously should go well, well that's something for the future so maybe we'll see some of these cars again but for me this has been quite extraordinary day out in one of the most extraordinary museums in Europe if not the world all credit to Norman Foster that he's been able to uh, pull this together clearly he's worked with other people who've advised and, and actually found the cars because so many of these are from private collections but I hadn't realized that his own collection was so extensive and with the help of uh, Nick Mason and Ten Tenths, so they've pulled this together. And uh, hopefully we'll see some of these cars appear at Goodwood, which is the Festival of Speed particularly, is where you see so many cars that you just can't see. And there you see them, at least in display mode up the hill. So uh, this is a one-off exhibition. I'm hopeful that it might tour. I can find in discussing this with the press office, there's no mention of it so far, but... It won't have a home which is as spectacular as Frank Gehry's Guggenheim Museum, but it's here a.m. and it's time to go and get some fresh air.
0: Still very jealous. Some fantastic cars that really do need to be seen to be believed. And if you want to see them for yourself, then do check out our UK Motor Talk YouTube channel. The exhibition is in Bilbao until Sunday the 18th of September, so if you happen to be a lot more local than us, then you really must go. If, on the other hand, you happen to be going to Goodwood Revival next weekend, do give us a shout. If not, we'll be there from bright and early on Friday morning, so keep an eye on all of the socials, ukmotortalk.co.uk, and we are at UK Motor pretty much everywhere, and especially this very podcast feed to make sure you don't miss any of our coverage. Until then, goodbye, take care. UK Motor Talk, a First Take Media production.